Hey everyone, I'm Nate Vinio, and this is Something to Gnaw On, a short podcast for those with a short attention span or just short on time, designed to give you something to mentally or spiritually chew on throughout your day. A Bible study in bite-sized form, if you will. This episode is My TED Talk, a short story about legacy. Ted was the oldest man and the only general to go ashore in the first wave on D-Day. Nobody threw him under the bus on this assignment. He volunteered. In fact, he pointed out to senior leadership in the days leading up to the attack that there were no battle-tested officers slated to hit the beach in the first wave, and he wanted to go. Ted had grown up in a well-to-do family and received a Harvard education. And despite the silver spoon, he was raised in a very patriotic manner. If there was a fight for liberty, Ted and his brothers would be there. It was a legacy they embraced from their father. As an officer in World War I, Ted had a deep interest in the well-being of each of his soldiers, to the extent that he interacted with them on an excessive level. And over his career, some officers would take issue with it as a sign of weakness. But that was never how he saw it. At the end of World War I, Ted left the Army and went to work in both private sector jobs and held significant offices in politics. At the same time, he's the spearhead that begins an organization for serving veterans called the American Legion, an organization that is still in effective operation today. When World War II started, he left his private job and ended up being commissioned as a general, a contemporary of General Patton under Omar Bradley. And despite needing to walk with a cane as a result of an injury in World War I and neglecting to tell the Army about his heart condition, he enjoyed great success leading men in battle in the deserts of Africa and European campaigns. That is, until he crossed swords with Patton. This part of the story is a bit vague and political, but the long and the short of it is that it would appear that Patton wanted the division that Ted led so that he could pad his numbers for his march to Berlin. So he makes a grand argument to Omar Bradley that Ted's fraternization with enlisted men and his generally disheveled look as such was bad for morale and that another general, as well, needed to be demoted. Patton's argument is successful, and Ted goes from two-star general to one-star general. And despite his many successes in battle thus far, it was an incredible setback. And this is part of the backdrop of the D-Day invasion. After his years of service in World War I, he knew the chaos of battle and how some men tend to respond when the fight gets sideways. These young men needed leadership. Battle tested direction and focus from a man who could see the big picture when the lead started to fly. His verbal request was denied twice, but when he put it in writing and submitted it to his superiors, they had no choice but to approve. They all thought it was a suicide mission. The oldest man in the first wave, with a cane in his left hand and a Colt 1911 in the other, he joined the thousands of men who went ashore on Utah Beach. While many have thought of it as a suicide mission, it had more to do with his foresight, knowing what those men would be facing on the beach and knowing what it would take to survive. He knew every man on that beach would need unflappable leadership. They needed Ted. They were going to need his clear-headed leadership in the midst of chaos, and Ted knew it beforehand, so he volunteered. And everyone else would come to agree, but after the fact. 
The plans for assaulting the beach were clear. Assignments were handed out. Practice drills had been run. On paper, it was clear. And as the boats launched, however, the plan quickly went sideways. Quite literally, due to tides and currents, the boats landed hundreds of yards from their intended targets, rendering their plans and intel useless. Add to this the loss of life and intermixing and separation of units, and you have nothing but chaos on Utah Beach. But Ted shows up with his cane, walking stoically amongst the flying lead and shouting orders to men starving for guidance. It's here that the famous phrase is uttered, We'll start the fight from right here. Although none of them knew exactly what here was, they knew the goal. The goal was to take the beach and kill Germans. Ted draws up a plan on the beach, on the fly, and under fire. Eyewitness accounts of Ted standing, leading, marching up and down the beach, pointing with his 1911 or his cane, and even leading a few excursions are numerous. But never once is he accused of flinching with any grenade explosion or bullet flying by. As the day wore on, Ted kept the men focused. He refused to let fear take over, refused to let men hide, and even led three separate charges up the hill. He accurately predicted the chaos, although he didn't know what it would specifically look like, and he kept the men focused on the goal. And if you know your history, you know they were successful. They took the beach. About a month later, someone is interviewing Omar Bradley, who was the general of the army at the time. They ask him, what was a key to D-Day? And his response is quick. Ted, on Utah Beach. Ted's actions is heralded as the key to the Normandy invasion. His foresight in seeing the potential problem, his commitment to go in the first wave, his ability to reformulate the battle plan and direct soldiers in the chaos of battle, and successfully taking the beach lead up to him being awarded the Medal of Honor. An honor that his father desperately sought for his exploits on San Juan Hill. Although he petitioned several times, he was denied. Ted's father was none other than Theodore Roosevelt, our country's 26th president, a man that instilled an incredible legacy in his children. I promise I'll get to a core biblical principle shortly, but before I do, indulge me a bit further in this story. Ted captured sentiments of his upbringing in a memoir written after World War I entitled Average Americans. He highlights an upbringing that prepared him for battle as well as a post-war appreciation for those whom he fought with, both dead and alive. It's an homage to his father and mentor, who died a year prior to its publication, as well as an acknowledgment and an encouragement to the men in his command. It illustrates what I would call a Moses-type leadership style and the legacy process. Ted writes, quote, Father and mother believed in a robust righteousness. In the stories and poems they read us, they always bore this in mind. Pilgrim's Progress and the Battle Hymn of the Republic we knew when we were very young. When father was dressing for dinner, he used to teach us poetry. And I can remember memorizing all of the most stirring parts of Longfellow's saga of King Olaf, of Sheridan's ride, and the sinking of the Cumberland. 
The gallant incidents of history were told to us in such a way that we never forgot them. I want to read that again here. The gallant incidents of history were told to us in such a way that we never forgot them. In Washington, when Father was a civil service commissioner, I often walked to the office with him. On the way down, he would talk history to me. Not the dry history of dates and charters, but the history where you yourself, in your imagination, could assume the role of the principal actor. Average Americans, page 3. Imagine this. A father whose hands are otherwise occupied with the cinching of a bow tie for some state dinner and otherwise incapable of wrangling kids by hand, but he's captivated his children's attention with both his words and the manner in which he delivers a story. Or what about the father who's not so focused on work that he can't take a few moments to get up early and walk with his child, not passing along factually accurate anecdotes, but imparting character and perspective, a first-person telling of history, one walk to work at a time. This is a father who manages to capture the attention of his children whenever he opens his mouth. At another place in the memoir, Ted reminisces about how his dad was the only dad in the neighborhood who would go camping with the kids. Most likely this was before the presidency, but nonetheless, he was very present in the lives of his boys. There are two sides of a relationship happening here. The father actively engaging the child, and the child is drawn in to willingly participate. He's not turning the radio on or letting his kid tune him out with an electronic device. In this case, he may not be passing the entirety of Scripture to his children, but Teddy Roosevelt executes a perfect illustration of the process that Moses outlines in Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 and 7. He says to the children of Israel, And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. The point of this was to be sure that reverent obedience was passed from one generation to another. A miracle-working God of past generations could be trusted to work in future generations, that the legacy would expand, the track record of peace and providence and protection would extend from generation to generation, and God would be honored as opposed to ignored and offended by future generations. Moses practices what he preaches, and he empties himself into Joshua. Anywhere Moses goes, Joshua followed. Whether it was working together in the battle against the Amalekites, or scouting out the Promised Land, or following Moses into the Tent of Meeting, or up the mountain for 40 days. And out of these experiences, Moses leaves a legacy of reverential awe that drives a devotion in Joshua for God and His law as he guides the Israelites into the Promised Land. And Joshua's character commands the respect of those he leads. I've honestly wrestled a bit with the story of Teddy and Ted Roosevelt. It's a powerful piece of history that any American should know. It also provides a practical template of passing a legacy on to the next generation. But unfortunately, 
The story of Teddy Roosevelt also highlights another reality in the process. I fear people look at the idea of legacy and think along the lines of leaving a legacy or not leaving a legacy. And that's not an option. The reality is that you will leave a legacy. The question is, what does that legacy look like? And will it have a significant impact in the long run? In his teenage years, Theodore made a profession of faith in the Presbyterian Church and followed up his statement of faith with several years of service, teaching Sunday school, and in the ministry to the indigent. I will attach a link from the Gospel Coalition in the show notes that highlights his faith. It's pretty interesting. The author of the article notes a departure in the frequency in which Teddy wrote and spoke about all things biblical and Christian after the death of his father, and a few short years later, the deaths of his wife and his mother, who incidentally died within hours of each other. Throughout his political career, you can see occasional references to Bible and Christianity, but they certainly diminish the further you get from the passing of his wife and of his mother. And they certainly lack the zeal with which he pursued patriotic and political issues. And consequently, you see the legacy that is passed on to Ted. It's a great political and patriotic legacy, to be sure. But as of this recording, I remember little, if any, reference to the faith of the children. And maybe it's there, and I just haven't found it yet. But the reality is that the defining legacy of this branch of the Roosevelt family is incredibly political and patriotic, not spiritual or Christian. So it begs the question to gnaw on today. What are you passing on to your children or to those that you disciple? You're passing something along. The question is, what is it? Do you follow Moses' instruction and example from Deuteronomy 6 and take every opportunity to instruct your kids? Do you work to instruct like Teddy Roosevelt when Ted says, quote, On the way down, he would talk history to me, not the dry history of dates and charters, but the history where you yourself in your imagination, could assume the role of the principal actor. Do you work at engaging your kids in the stories of the Bible, in the mornings, in the evenings, on the way to school, or on the way to work? I would challenge you today to shut off the radio, shut off the TV, put electronic devices down, and tell your kids stories. Not just the points and facts of Scripture. Tell the stories. Engage their imagination. Get them to imagine themselves walking through the Red Sea and seeing the fish and the whales swimming up against the edge of the water. Get them to imagine themselves hiding behind rocks and trees as they're spying out the promised land. What would that have been like? Help them put themselves in the shoes of those they read about in Scripture. At the same time, begin to tell them how those lessons have played out in your life, about how the same God of the Bible that worked so mightily in Bible days is still working in our day. God is working today. He is doing miracles. He is active in this world. We have to acknowledge this and open the eyes of our kids to see it. This is where legacy starts.
And if by chance you're thinking that you don't see it happening presently, that God isn't at work like he has been in Bible times, I'll be praying that God would open your eyes to see what he's done and where he's moving presently. I'm Nate Vinio, and this has been Something to Gnaw on. What's your legacy? God bless.